Hey, fried friends. This week I have a power-packed episode for you with Dr. Kara Pepper. Yes, her name is Dr. Pepper, a physician and a coach to physicians. We chat a lot about making changes in areas that you can actually control, separating the external and internal causes of burnout, and focusing on what you actually can change first, gaining energy from that, and then moving on to the rest. This talk is so damn important right now as we continue to move through COVID and physician and nurse and hospital worker burnout is going through the roof. Share this one with all of your medicine-based friends. They need to know that they are not alone, we've got their backs, and that there is help out there. So let's dive in. Welcome to Fried, the burnout podcast. Fried is the podcast for everyone who has ever felt burnout because of their job, relationship, or life. Kate Donovan, burnout expert, will interview a new guest each week who will share their burnout stories with all the gory details. Every episode will give you immediate action steps that you can take right now if you're feeling fried and crispy around the edges. Fried's main goals are to raise burnout awareness, kill the associated shame, and create a movement to end burnout culture. Hi, Fried friends. I am so excited today to have someone that I have been following for at least a year, if not longer, on Instagram because she is a burnout coach for physicians, which is thrilling to me because a lot of you know that I did attempt to start a pre-med program and never really got through it. But my whole dream, my whole life was to be an MD. And the reason I didn't go down that road was because I was afraid of the burnout and I ended up burning out anyway. But today we're going to be talking to Dr. Kara Pepper, who is a practicing primary care internist in Atlanta, Georgia, and a life coach for physicians struggling with burnout, transition, imposter syndrome, and perfectionism. Oh, guys, this is going to be good. She helps physicians love the life they've worked so hard to create. She is a recovering perfectionist, wife, mom, yogi, and Westie lover. (laughs) Kara, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so excited to hear your story because when I was in my second year of my pre-med program, so I was majoring in biology on a pre-med track and I was minoring in Eastern religion because- Of course. Because of course. I took a class called the Sociology of Medical School. Mm. And we had to read a book about someone's experience going through medical school and then going through residency. And it was after that class that I was like, I can't do that to myself. I can't be 32, a quarter of a million dollars in debt and like totally exhausted. That does not make sense to me. And I totally broke down and I went to my meditation teacher that was on my Eastern religion side. And I said, Livia, I don't know what to do. And she said, well, do Chinese medicine. I said, what's that? (laughs) And that's how I became an acupuncturist. So this is going to be really, really interesting to me. So I would like to create some space now for you to tell your burnout story. And I want you to feel free to take up space here and tell the depths of it and really let us know what you went through. Great. Thanks. So thanks again for having me. I think uh, burnout is something that's not unique to healthcare providers, although it's certainly very common in healthcare providers particularly at the time that you and I are having this conversation, it's right in the midst of COVID. And so it's such an issue that the whole world has been put in timeout and people are really recognizing, wow, I really was burnout and I don't want to go back to that life pre-COVID. So I guess my story starts so far before I even got into medicine. 
when I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional ballet dancer. And so I had this really unique opportunity in eighth grade to leave home and go to Russia. I moved to Moscow in 91 and trained at the Bolshoi Ballet. So it was a really unusual experience. And I was the first American with another woman to go over there. And when I came back, um, didn't want to live at home because I wanted to dance. And so I went to a performing arts high school in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, called North Carolina School of the Arts and got a job dancing out of high school. Never thought I'd go to college. In fact, the dean of my school told my parents, like, you need to, like, stop pressuring her to get an education. Dancers just dance. That's what we do. And so for me, I think, although I remember those years very fondly, I think, you know, the normal things that people go through as an adolescent, I never really dealt with because I just escaped into the world of dance and it was very structured and very rigid. And I loved that. You know, for me, I was very black and white thinking and really loved that rigidity that ballet allowed. You know, you could be artistic, but you didn't really have to like feel anything. I could really just buffer any feelings I was having by escaping in the classroom. And so, you know, it could have been the pack of cigarettes I was smoking every day or the Diet Coke I was living on. But, you know, three years into my dancing career, I was so injured with bony injuries, I couldn't dance anymore. I moved back home to Florida and thought I would be a physical therapist because I've been a patient of physical therapy for so long. But my orthopedist said, you know, your personality is better suited for medicine, which I think is a nice way of saying that I'm bossy and I like to be in charge. So that's how I decided to go to med school. I knew no doctors. I had never, you know, I was good at science, but I didn't really have any. It's probably better I didn't think it out. Anyway, I went to college and went to med school and thought, how did I trick these people into letting me in here? You know, I'm just a kid who's dancing. And so I did what I was really good at, which was to put my head down and do the work and not think and not feel. And of course, in med school, you're watching people die for the first time, or at least I was, and working really hard and looking around at these really brilliant colleagues and thinking, I'm not good enough to be here. So imposter syndrome like really snuck in during those years. And I just kept saying, if I just keep working hard, I'll, I'll catch up one day. And then got married and moved to Atlanta to do my residency. And it was more of the same, right? Like my brain came with me. Those thoughts came with me of, I'm, I'm not quite good enough. If I just work harder, I'll be okay. And eventually I'll get past this. But, you know, there's no threshold for the amount of success or the amount of achievement that you get that gets rid of those thoughts. It's really like a belief of like, oh my gosh. And, you know, when you're working 80 to 100 hours a week in residency, you don't have time to think or feel, you're just doing. And so I never really dealt with this sense of insecurity, but I was really, really good at what I did and really, really good on paper. So I got by without having to justify that. So got a job, of course, you know, with a bunch of high achieving doctors. I love my practice, but my husband, who's also high achieving, um, was traveling for a living. He's a consultant and we had two young children. And so I just did what I was good at, which was just to keep working. Seven years into practice, I was exhausted and I looked great on paper. I checked all the boxes, but I was staring down 40 thinking like, this is it. Like, this is the life I built for myself. Like my partner's gone. I have two young children. I'm working too much. And I, I this isn't what I thought, right? I really didn't have a way to reconcile that because I had not developed those skills to really like get comfortable with discomfort. I just physically felt ill. I felt like I had the flu all the time. You know, I didn't have time for, for meaningful friendship, not many anyway. And so I just was crashing and burning. And so ultimately in the wake of my in-laws, my mother-in-law and father-in-law died back to back within three months and my husband just fell apart. Like he, you know, grief takes over. And so I just couldn't hold the pieces of our marriage, of our parenthood, of my work together anymore. And I just thought I am done with this life I've created. 
and I felt like total failure. And I had tons of shame because I was like, I mean, I have everything. Like, why am I so unhappy? And so at the advice of a really great mentor, I just took a sabbatical and just said, I just need time to figure this out. <laughs> That's kind of the joke, right? Like you think, oh, she took years. No, I took six whole weeks off because that felt like an eternity, right? That's a maternity leave. And that's all I personally am allowed to take. I took six weeks off, but it bought me enough time to not feel like I was on fire anymore, not to feel like couldn't even get out of bed anymore. And out of that time really came a lot of conversations with other physicians who were like, how did you do that? How did you negotiate that with your practice? You must have been so brave. And I was like, brave? Like, I'm ready to move to Florida and open a yoga studio. Like, I'm not doing this life anymore. So I didn't realize that at the time, but I really had started coaching to say, you're not alone. We're in this together. This is not what we expected. You know, of course, through lots of therapy and also coaching, like I really was able to find time to heal and to recognize that the only person standing in my way was me, right? Like my total fear of failure, my need to like look perfect on paper, not for anyone else's benefit, but really for my own um, and to really acknowledge what I needed going into that next decade of life uh, really allowed me to just reevaluate life. So I rebuilt a life that was meaningful to me. I put some boundaries around work and started working part-time at 40 hours a week. Your listeners can't see my air quotes, but that's part-time in medicine. (laughs) And so, you know, really got involved in the coaching world. And so decided that it had been so helpful in this mindset shift and really looking at the narrative that I was carrying around. Like, I'm not good enough. Everyone else has got it figured out. And I'm the only one who's failing. Clearly, in order to be a good mom, I have to be all these ideals. And so when I really started questioning that narrative, it really helped me shift my focus about what was real and meaningful in my life. So I decided to start coaching other docs who were really struggling with the same things. And, you know, we're not great at asking for help typically. So to have a physician colleague who speaks the language and gets it, you know, that's how I ended up in this line of coaching physicians. So you said a lot of things that I hear um, frequently. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. This was something that was extreme in my life. I got to the point where I thought, I mean, I had a full acupuncture practice. I had a three month waiting list. I had enough money coming in. My husband was wonderful and we had an apartment and that was great. And, and what's next, right? Like yeah, when I look for all my value being external, like I got the diploma, I finished residency, I got the marriage and the children and the house and the car and everything looked great. But when there was no more like milestones to check off, at least perceived, and I was staring down 30 more years of clinical practice thinking like, this is what I bought. Like, this is the end of the road for me. That just felt unmanageable. And And I did this on purpose because going to med school, you don't do by accident. Correct. And like the shame around that, I think a lot of people feel like I should be happy. I created this and now I've got to undo it. And like, Medicine is a noble profession. It is wonderful. I love caring for people, but you can't pour from an empty cup. And that's really where I was at that point in time. And so no wonder I felt so miserable. So one of the things that I talk about with clients very, very often, almost every single client, I have a chart that I have people fill out that is side-by-side internal versus external factors. Mm. It's all internal. When you're a doctor and somebody's expecting you to work 80 hours a week, 120 hours a week, and you have to do that to get through residency, it's part of your requirements. That's an external factor. Sure. That's the situation that you're in. When you're going through the grieving of loss of loved ones, that's an external factor. There's some internal work going on, obviously, but that's something that happened outside of your life. You did not create that. You do not control that. 
the way that you spoke about it now, it might be with the power of, of you know, hindsight vision, the power of 2020 hindsight perspective. You talked a lot about the internal causes, kind of, you, you know, the, the not enoughness, the perfectionism, the imposter syndrome. If you had to judge from today's perspective, what would you give the internal versus external factors for your particular burnout scenario? I mean, we know that burnout is an occupational exposure. There's an ICD-10 or ICD-11 code for it. You know, the World Health Organization has acknowledged it. So clearly there are extrinsic factors that lead to burnout. And if you look at, you know, the Stanford model, you know, two thirds to 80% is considered environmental in terms of organizational stress, cultural stress, you know, those types of things. But that being said... So yes, working, you know, being a newlywed and falling asleep at dinner every single night, like working 80 to 100 hours a week, like I didn't have control over my schedule and that was really overwhelming. By comparison, like a lot of it is in the framework of your mind and the way that you want to create your narrative. And if you tell yourself you're miserable every day and you're overwhelmed and it's not fair and I don't have control over my life, it's going to create a pretty negative experience. And to that point, you know, I worked side by side with colleagues along the way in med school residency and in my clinical practice who love what we were doing and loved the network and loved being at work 80 hours a week. And they're like, I don't understand why you're burnt out. Literally. I think it's both, right? I think the rub, particularly in healthcare, is that there are a lot of factors that are outside of our control and make our jobs harder. Yeah. Insurance companies, yeah. pharmaceutical companies, hospital administrators, et cetera. And so to put all the blame on the individual is not fair. And also it's not the primary primary source of the burnout, right? So we each have to own our part. We will do our part because we're accountable as physicians, but hospitals need to do their part too. Yeah. So this is that's something that's really interesting to me because I just did a webinar for 250 people about an hour ago on why burnout isn't your fault. Mm -hmm. There are some internal factors going on, and but most of those internal factors are also not your fault, <laughs> like that you've created these, you know, adaptations to trauma that create your behavior. Sure. That trauma or whatever it is that happened that created that in you is, is not your fault. That usually happened when we were children. It usually happened during the neuro neurobiological development of the brain when we were in theta brain waves and we had no control. So how do you help physicians create enough safe space to be able to do the internal work while they're still in the external situation that is at least partially responsible for the state that they're in? Great question. Yeah, I mean, just like whether you're in an abusive marriage or you're working 100 hours a week or, you know, you are diagnosed with cancer and you're, you're ending days, like there are things that are outside of our control. And so I think acknowledging what you truly have control over and what you don't is the first step making sure that like the part that you do have control over, you show up in the best way possible. And then from that space of empowerment, then deciding what to do with the things that are outside of your control. Like, you know, yeah, like, you know, working as a resident and working 80 plus hours a week, like I didn't have a choice in that, you know, but I could control like what, how I wanted to show up for myself and for my patients and what I did with my body when I wasn't there, sleeping, eating well, not drinking too much, whatever. And knowing that there's an end to that time period. And for some people, the end is too far down the road and they really have to reevaluate if they can make it that far. And that's okay. But I think having a tremendous amount of self-compassion and safe space to talk about these very real issues that we're facing. I mean, when I was a resident, you know, I was the 
resident of the year and had, you know, was on this board that reported to the program directors. And, you know, I would have people come to me, men, women, both crying, saying, I feel like I'm alone on the island. No one gets what I'm going through. There's no place to talk about it. And I'd say, hey, we need to create space where people can talk about this. And the answer was like, well, you need to go to therapy because you're depressed. And they were right. I was depressed. I did need help. And also we needed a supportive environment where people felt that they could actually talk about these things. How do you create that space? It's, it's both, right? It's acknowledging your locus of control. I think that's important. And I also would like to know, I, I like them both for different reasons, but I would like to know how you leaned on therapy versus coaching when you were going through your own burnout. Yeah, great question. So I started with therapy in residency and frankly was not ready to admit what my role is. It was very easy for me to point externally and just be like, it's all the stuff outside. I'm fine. I don't want to deal with my perfectionism or black and white thinking. And then I started again, like once I was in practice and I've been seeing the same woman for 10 years, she's just for me, like part of my secret sauce and what keeps me well, just like eating well, not drinking too much, exercising, sleeping, connecting with other humans. She's just like part of my team. I personally had issues that I needed to deal with from growing up and my dynamics with my family and all of that. And that was super helpful, but coaching by comparison, instead of looking in the rear view mirror, like what got me to this point, coaching is much more forward facing. Like here I am with all the baggage. How am I going to get to where my next stop on this journey is? And so it is healing, but it is a different way of looking at your power and knowing that you have the answers that you really need. And so I use them both for part of my secret sauce. Me too. But I think that this is a hard thing for some people to understand. Like you have this therapist who's been through a massive amount of schooling, and then you have a coach who may have been through or not a year long, a program, a three month program. Uh, right. No program. A right. No program. I learned my coaching techniques, apprenticing with someone. Right. So there's not, you know, coaching is not a licensed field in America. Like congratulations, everyone listening right now is a life coach. <laughs> Welcome to the profession. Welcome, right? So I think from a consumer standpoint, you want to know that you're getting value for your money, not only just seeing what they're able to do and having a conversation, part of it's just natural chemistry, but part of it's asking like truly, like what is your technique? What are you doing? What's your training? There are international coaching federation certified programs, but I know plenty of amazing coaches who did not get certified through there. There's the Life Coach School out of Texas, which is amazing. I trained at neither one of those, and I trained by a physician who was coaching physicians to train physicians. It was exactly what I knew that I wanted and needed. Yeah. So part of it is you know, making sure that people have a solid technique, they have testimonials from other patients, from other clients, and really a lot of it's about chemistry. You know, you know what you need and you know what you need looking forward. I think that's much the same also with a therapist and even with a doctor. Like you, you've got to have the vibe. You've got to have the chemistry because if you don't trust this person, if you don't feel safe or good with this person, the research that I've done and the research that's behind my book just shows me that a lot of our burnout is trauma adaptations. Almost all of it in one way or another. There are other reasons and there are external factors and there are other things that pop up, but underneath most things, that's what I see. And sometimes while I love therapy, if the therapist is not trauma-informed, it won't help you get through that. What questions would you tell someone to ask 
if they thought that trauma was part of their story, they know they need to heal. And they're not sure if Sally Coach from down the street is going to be able to help them. Like they're wondering if they should be in therapy or if they should be doing some sort of somatic body work or if they should be. Right. I would just, I mean, if you feel so compelled as a client to just simply say, how much experience do you have with patients who are, have experienced trauma? Are you in trauma informed um, therapist or coach? Um, because it, it's not a small deal, right? Um, it is a big deal. And to be totally frank, when people come to me and say, hey, I want to coach, probably 10% of them, I say, you're not ready for coaching. I really think that trauma is such a big deal that let's heal those wounds and move forward. There are other coaches who are like, oh, I've got you. I can do this through coaching. But my personal belief is that there's a time and space for everything. And for people on the flip side, who don't want to see a therapist and say, well, let me see what coaching can do. We keep running into the trauma in every domain that we're working on. And so the coaching is not quite as effective until the trauma is really addressed. And so I will tell you, like, I am not a psychotherapist. I am trauma informed, but I'm not trauma trained. And so I need some, I need colleagues, just like I'd send you to a pulmonologist for your, you know, COPD or a cardiologist for your heart disease, like let everyone stay in their lane and and manage the things that they're really experts in. Because together as a team, that's where the, the real efforts um, you'll see. That's what you're saying before, you know, the secret sauce of things that keep you healthy. And this is, it works the same in acupuncture for a long time. All I did was fertility work, which um, totally wore me out because unfortunately this maybe sounds terrible, but I, I don't really care if people have babies. <laughs> so that wasn't really exciting for me. Right. Right. <laughs> I like the people, but the outcome yeah, was not really yeah. good, right? I liked the people and the, the outcome wasn't as exciting for me. I was happy for their joy, but what was difficult for me was being in fertility. I was often working with people that were burnt out and I didn't recognize this until many years after I, I switched into general practice. I didn't realize that so many of the people I were working with were burnt out. And when they asked the question, is this it? They thought, oh, I'll just have a kid because that will fulfill me. And what I saw happening was people going through massively expensive fertility treatments on top of that coming for acupuncture every week, having a baby successfully and coming back to me after a year and saying, well, I've got to have another one because I'm not there yet. I mean, as humans, right, like our our reptilian brains, like our caveman brains are programmed to either pursue pleasure or avoid pain, right? And like, sure, like the joy of a newborn, if that's your experience, and certainly is not everyone's experience. But if you have this dopamine hit from like, I love this baby and it's so exciting, I'm getting all this attention and, you know, this is lovely. And then once like the real work and the exhaustion and potentially postpartum depression hits, like, yeah, I can see how people would say maybe just having another baby is the answer. But, you know, it's until we really address our brain and the underlying cause that. Yeah. Yeah. This was when I started coaching and did the apprenticeship and we started a fertility coaching company. Oh, cool. To help people through that at the time, because I, I felt so like bereft for people who were going through this whole process. And then they were still disappointed when they got what they wanted, because that's never what it was about. Sure. So that was just an interesting process. And I think that that's something to think about, because it doesn't matter whether the goal is, like you were saying, baby, new job, become an MD, get the right residency. Mm-hmm. Check off the box, check off the box, check off the box. Another thing that you mentioned in the beginning was that you got to where you wanted to be. And then you were like, well, I just want to disappear to Florida and open a yoga studio. Mm-hmm. If people find themselves stuck in this mode of checking the boxes, what would be your first advice? 
first advice is like, why is checking the box so important to you? And what is it doing for you? Are you doing it really because that is your passion? That's what you want to do. You're doing it because you're like halfway through the training. You should just finish it. Like what, why is the reason? Okay. What are you getting out of this? And then if you find yourself in that spot of all the achievement, quote, all of the achievements are finished. And now you feel a little stuck and like you're burning out or you don't think that where you are is where you really intended to go. Part of it's just like finding a person who really gets it to talk to about that because I felt so incredibly alone when I was there. Like part of it, that was the shame and the failure and all that. But I felt like I couldn't even admit it, much less to anyone else. I couldn't admit it to myself. So if you're just stuck in this uncomfortable, yucky place, like really find either a good physician coach or therapist or someone that you really connect with to say like, ugh, I'm struggling with this. Hey, fried friends. I am so excited to continue talking to you about the Resentment Journal mini course because it is one of my favorite things that I have ever created for you. This mini course is for everybody who is feeling irritable, resentful, angry, and feeling like they're not acting the way that they want to in their lives because everyone is annoying them. So if you are in I hate everyone mode, everyone is annoying me mode, this course is for you. You will learn to take your resentment, you will transform it in minutes into an action plan that might include upgrading something in your life, a new boundary that needs to be put into place, but it will be clear by the time you finish. In addition, to get you in the mood, you'll get a free Spotify playlist, and there's a free cheat sheet for you to download so that you can do this on the run in the future. And it's just $27, so you should grab it now. You don't wanna let this one go. Get it at katedenovan.com forward slash resentment dash journal, and that link will be in your show notes. How did that shift for you? When did you decide that you could do something, talk to someone, ask someone, admit? When I had young children, I was exhausted, overwhelmed, and thought, I just need to fix this problem, right? One more box to check. I'm going to talk to the therapist for what? how many is this? Literally, I had this conversation. How many visits? It's going to be like one, two, five visits, like, and then we're done, right? Like, all my problems are solved. I never viewed really until recently that it's, I'm continuing to evolve. And this notion that if I just do a certain number of things that I'm finished growing. I mean, that's possible. I could just stop growing, but that's not who I am as a person or a human. In the process of growth, we're going to continue to kick, push that milestone down the field. And so I knew that I needed help, but unfortunately for me, my resistance to getting help or <laughs> doing what the helper was telling me to do um, really just landed me in a place of burnout and I had no choice. I was really at a place where I was ready to quit my job, quit my marriage, move out of town, move to the beach, start a new career. And had I done that, it may have temporarily given me a distraction, but my brain was coming with me and all the thoughts and all the narrative, all of that would have come with me and I would have been in the exact same place. Wherever you go, there you are. There you are. So it really took me saying, I can't do this life anymore. And this is not what I want. And I've got to find another way forward. And really just admitting the things that really made me uncomfortable about myself and about my life. And just in the freedom of saying those things, it's, it allowed me time and space to evaluate what I really needed. I think that's the most common thing that I hear from coaching clients. I just can't go on like this. And I don't know what else to do. Sure. Absolutely. Like, get me out of here. And why not? Push the escape button and let's get out of here, right? 
all day we find things to make ourselves feel better, whether it's eating or drinking or smoking or scrolling social media or porn or overworking. I mean, all of those things are common, right? But getting comfortable with discomfort is really a lot of the work that we do in coaching. Yes, getting comfortable with discomfort. That is a sentence that pops up every third or fourth episode here on Friday. We, we talk about that a lot uh, in these. I think we're onto something, right? Yeah, I think we're onto something. Now that you are on the other side of burnout, for me, well, maybe I'll start with myself. For me, this is a constant work. I know that I can fall into those traps at any time. I have worked through a huge number of things. And as I go day by day, I notice new ones Mm -hmm. because that's how it happens. Now I notice them with a sense of curiosity and almost humor Mm -hmm. because I catch myself in something and I think, oh, well, that's silly. Like, come on, you know, and then I can shift it quite easily because I'm not so attached to it because I don't have a strong emotional tie to what's happening. I had a patient ask me, then what do you do once you're burnout free? I was like, well, (laughs) I don't really know. (laughs) Because that's still going to be my tendency if I don't pay attention to where I'm growing and what I want and where my energy is and how I'm spending it. Totally. And who I'm spending it with and on. Absolutely. So what does that look like in your life? Well, I mean, so I got out of burnout and then immediately decided once I got my life situated that I'd be a life coach, right? So like, why not just do all the things that life coaches do? I'll start a CME and I'll do some group work and I'll have one-on-one clients and I'll start social media and I'll write some art. And like, you know, nine months into my life coach practice, I was like, oh my God, my brain came with me, right? Like I'm doing the things. And so the beauty of that in addition to having like self-compassion is like when you go through it, you know, you like, I didn't have to wait until I couldn't get out of bed anymore. I was like, oh God, here I am again. Here are my litmus tests, right? I'm irritable. I don't want to sit down on the rug with my kid and play a game. Like all these like things are sneaking back in. And I'm like, okay, hold up. Like that's my guardrail right there. I talk a lot about guardrails, right? Like you don't want to wait until you're the bottom of the valley of death, right? You want that guardrail way back 20 feet from the edge of the cliff to say like, it's uncomfortable now, but you know what lays on the other side. So you get better. And that's part of the evolution that we talked about earlier. Like, of course, my brain is going to tell me I should be a high achiever. That's, that's like how I'm programmed. But uh, reconciling that it's not who I am, but what I do um, is really helpful. I'm like, oh, yes, of course, you're showing up here again. I know what that is. Okay, I know how to deal with that, that humor that you, that you mentioned. I love using the word litmus test for like kind of burnout risk factor kind of things popping up. And you said um, irritable. The thing that I ask people to look for most frequently as a burnout red flag mm-hmm. is resentment, which often comes out in irritability. Mm-hmm. But that to me is sort of a massive burnout red flag. You said irritable and you don't feel like, you know, getting on the floor to play with your kid. What are your other flash moments? What are your other litmus test moments? Yeah, totally. So I actually make my clients go through this exercise quite frequently. So at work for me personally, it's when I look at my schedule and I say, oh my God, it's only crazy patients on my schedule today. Mm. Guess what? It's not the patients. It's me. It's like my reserve is low. And I know that when I have that thought, I have like this action plan that follows like no more add-ons today, no more meetings this week. It means I'm I'm strapped, whatever. So that's my work one. And at home, it's like I mentioned with my kid, hey, mom, can we play? And I'm like, oh, that sounds terrible. I have so much work to do, et cetera, et cetera. But like from a feeling behavior standpoint, it's like irritability, trouble sleeping, body aches. Like I mentioned, I felt like I had the flu. 
you know, just like kind of intolerance of other people, not more than just like irritability, but like I'm doing all this work and what's wrong with you? You can't keep up. So this like general like agitation by other people. Yeah, and resentment. Correct. And so the other thing I think it's important to point out too is like there's more and more data looking at depression, anxiety, burnout, and really distinguishing between those things. Because I think particularly physicians who like two thirds of the states in, in America, you have to report if you've had a mental health issue. It's easier to say at this point, I feel burned out than it is to say I feel depressed. Mm-hmm. And especially in that overlap of like irritability, short tempered, don't feel motivated, nothing makes you happy anymore. Like it may be that you're depressed or it may be that you're burnout or it may be both or neither. So like really talking to someone who gets that, I think is really important. Yeah, this is something that I wrote about in in the book because I think that this is really important. How do you differentiate burnout and depression? Yeah, so I mean, I think particularly being a physician who treats psychiatric illness at least half of my clinical time, I think there's objective ways to measure that, questions to ask. And honestly, I don't skirt around the issue. I'll just say like, do you think you're depressed? And this is how it shows up in men versus women and both. And there's objective ways to measure that. And then um, burnout is similar. You know, it's it has maybe similar presenting symptoms on the surface, but it it's not a clinical burnout situation. You know, addressing like the work related stuff because the intervention they are they're different, and the interventions are very different. Like I'm not going to tell you for your depression you should hire a scribe at work and that's going to help you, right? Or for your burnout, I'm not going to say here take this pill for depression, right? So it's really important because the interventions differ. So there's obviously, including myself, plenty of lay people listening. If somebody is wondering, is there something that we could tell them to help them differentiate between those two things? Because the one of the reasons that I work with primarily entrepreneurs is that it's really hard to blame the workplace when you're the one who makes the workplace. Yeah. And burnout and depression in the entrepreneurial realm have a much bigger overlap mm-hmm. I think, from what I've seen, Mm -hmm. because we're not necessarily talking about this occupational hazard because you created the occupation. Right. Your boss is you. Yeah. Like my boss told me that I can finish after this podcast today. She was super generous. Right. But as an entrepreneur, we still burn out. Right. I have a few issues with definitions of burnout because that it doesn't, you know, mothers can burn out when they are stay at home mothers. That is a full time job that can totally wear you out and burn you out. Not considered an occupation. Well, I consider it one. Should be. Yeah, I consider it one too. But if you went to your doctor, they might not think that. Correct. So I mean, part of it is really getting into someone that you can just be honest with about what your symptoms are. I mean, true depression, right? Like we think about like, and these are all general. So sometimes they're- Yeah, of course. But like fatigue, Lack of motivation, sadness, tearfulness, change in appetite, change in sleep patterns, guilty feelings, and then truly like the part of like hopelessness, suicidality, thoughts of hurting someone else, like that's more in the depression end of things, as opposed to burnout, which is like just the sense of like, what I'm doing doesn't matter anymore. I feel emotionally exhausted. I feel like I'm not having an impact in this thing that used to give me a lot of passion and purpose. And while those things really can overlap, it takes someone who knows what they're doing to to distinguish between the two. I want to have a little bit of a serious conversation now. So I'm going to trigger warning that you did mention suicidal ideations. And that's something that I've seen in depressed patients as an acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. And I have seen in clients as a burnout coach. And I do see them show up 
differently in those two people. Have you seen this in both scenarios? I don't know that I personally think burnout alone causes suicidality. I think they probably have both at that point and that the feeling of being trapped occupationally or by your burnout is then causing some depression. I don't know if that directly answers your question, but I don't know that I've seen burnout alone cause depression, or excuse me, cause suicidality. Have you? Well, and I think that I have. And the thing that I've noticed is ideas around it, that when it happens during burnout, people are saying like, I don't actually want to die. I just want to disappear. Right. So they're planning. I did have a, a woman tell me, you know, I wanted to drive off the road and hit a tree and maybe I'd end up in the hospital or maybe I'd end up dead. And I didn't actually want to do it, but I did think about it because at least it would change things. Right. Yes. That, we call that like passive suicidality. Like when you step in front of a bus and it hit me, like I wouldn't complain about it. Right. So maybe that's the difference. I've never heard the term passive suicidality. So maybe that is something that is, can be. I think it just gets back to that place of like desperately wanting to be out of the situation that yes, and not wanting to take your own life, but truly just being like, I don't, I can't see a word. I feel so cool. I can't even see a way. So. And that's the difference that I see that I don't see it as people actually wanting to t- plan, take action and go through with it. It's more of fantasy because they feel so stuck. Yeah, absolutely. That I have seen. Okay. So that's been something that's been interesting that's come up quite a few times um, in my work. And I've been like, okay, because normally I would say in situations like that, before I start working with someone, I ask them to do a full blood panel and to go see their doctor. Mm -hmm. Great. I've been an acupuncturist a long time. I've been in medicine a long time. Mm -hmm. If you have a vitamin D deficiency and it's making you exhausted, we need to deal with that. Let's fix the low hanging fruit, right? Yeah, let's exactly, exactly. Let's fix the low hanging fruit. If we find out you're a little bit dehydrated, your iron is low and you have like zero magnesium, let's deal with that first. If we find out that you have massively high white blood cells and now we need to figure out why and fix that before we, you know, there's all these things that can be happening physically with people. So is that something that you look, being a doctor and a burnout coach, is that something that you ask people to look at? Yeah. I mean, certainly medically, especially in primary care, it's like the easiest answer and the fastest answer. And to be honest, I hope it's your thyroid. I can fix it. Right. (laughs) But it's usually not. So in in those situations, it's just an easy way to get the low hanging fruit out of the way. Um, And then when I think about wellness and my intake, I think we both do a lot of questions at the front end, but you know, this some people call it the wellness wheel, but there's a lot of different versions, but looking at all these different domains of wellness, you know, like safety, security, financial security, connection, relationships. Um, So part of that is physical health, right? So addressing those things and making sure that people feel that they're plugged in and healthy in whatever capacity that means for them. That's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that part of it because I feel like sometimes we save people, you know, thousands of dollars in therapy and coaching because they found out that they're vitamin D deficient. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a kind of a bad doctor joke, right? I hope it's your thyroid. I hope you have a deficiency. I can fix that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What else would I love to hear from you? I had so many questions when I came in and then the conversation goes as it goes. Do you find more female doctors experiencing burnout than male doctors? Uh, yes, objectively, that's what it's been shown in the um, surveys and the studies that have been done. Being a woman uh, increases your risk for burnout, but men certainly are having those um, same symptoms. So why do you think that is? I think that's because 
as we grew up in the Cinderella era, era where we were told that we can be anything and do anything. And while that is true, we can do anything. We just can't do it all at the same time. And so the combination of wanting to be a high achiever and do things on your own, having a demanding career, the just normal demands of being a partner and being a mom or not, you know, all of those things, we still carry the mental load around that. Like, oh, I've got to get the birthday present. Don't forget the, you know, cleaner for the house and all that stuff. It's just too much for any one human to manage. That's why it literally takes a village sometimes, you know. I've had a lot of people talk about, do you know what Yentl syndrome is? Uh Uh-uh, tell me. Just this sort of idea that women don't get the same medical care Hmm. that men do. Hmm. And it's given a term because, you know, a man and a woman will both go to the doctor, they'll both have a headache, the the man will get a CAT scan, and the woman will be sent home and told that she is stressed out. Correct, exactly. Same with minorities and, um, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. So- If somebody is burnt out and they would like to go see their doctor and have some tests done, I think that sometimes for a woman or minority, this might be sort of ignored. Is there a way from your experience that they can present themselves in order to be heard and get what they need? Yes. So I think choosing your physician when you can, I understand when you show up in certain settings, you don't have control over who you're seeing, but I think having similar genders, similar racial, ethnic backgrounds, um, especially in the LGBTQ community, I think it's really important to get someone who's informed, particularly trauma-informed, like we talked about earlier. I think that just opens the ears. I think the very real reality is that every doctor is being pushed to see a lot of patients and the data that we have to process every day is a lot. So we're just looking for a pattern and sometimes that pattern gets missed or the patient doesn't feel comfortable disclosing. So I think finding someone you're comfortable with is step number one. And I think honesty is always the best policy. Like I feel like crap. I want a medical workup for this. And these are the things, believe me, people come in with lists from Google all day, every day. We know it. It's fine. So finding someone to be like, what's the real question that you're trying to answer here? Is there a medical explanation for your fatigue and overwhelm? Okay, great. I'll answer that question for you. And also let's do the holistic stuff that you're talking about doing in the background. Finding someone who gets you as part of being heard and getting the right medical care. Yeah, I think that that's great advice and something that I recommend strongly. And I know that people really struggle with because especially in the United States, having lived in Europe, in Eastern Europe for 12 years, the system is very different. I could choose any doctor I wanted and I had more control over that. And here depends on what insurance you have and it depends on where you live and it depends on what's available and it depends on, it's much more difficult um, I would say that I would encourage people that if you do feel burnt out and you would like to see your doctor and you don't have a doctor that you trust, I know that making an extra effort to do something right now is not really on your list of things that you would like to do, but finding that right person might get you the answers that you need to make this whole process much easier and faster. Because I think everyone just wants to be heard and validated. Like, sister, I see you. I see that you're raising two kids. I see that you're worried. I see you're worried that you're going to give COVID to your mom. I I see what you're in right now. And yes, while this is stress and we need to address that, like, let's answer the question. My job as your medical doctor when when I'm in that role is literally to answer the question that you're trying to answer for me. I think that is beautiful. So we are in the midst of COVID still. Uh, We thought that we would not be (laughs) anymore at this point, some of us anyway. There are more doctors experiencing burnout now. Suicide rates have gone up. 
things are going crazy in the medical community. So if there is a doctor listening to this right now and they don't know where to start. Yes. So part of it is just saying, hey, I want to get some help. There's lots of ways to do that. There are therapists within your community and therapists through your hospital organization, EAP. But I would really, if you feel like you want a physician who's a coach who gets this, I mean, there's people like me, there's this huge growing population of us who are dedicated to supporting our colleagues. So there's a website of 30 plus of us, physiciancoachingalliance.com. And you can search by gender, by background, by specialty. Most of us are still practicing clinical medicine. Um, and then certainly me, um, who deals with burnout and imposter syndrome and perfectionism and all that. You know, when we saw in the beginning, I was running big group coaching support groups for physicians as we entered uh, COVID. And it was a real interesting dichotomy because the people in the hospital, they didn't have time to think or feel. They just had to put on the PPE and do their work. And for a lot of people who are on the outpatient side, lost their jobs, were furloughed, weren't seeing patients there was a different level of fear, you know, really about providing for their families. Um, and I think no matter which end of the spectrum you're on, now that we're kind of two to three months in, this crash we're starting to see, the exhaustion, the adrenaline's wearing off. Yeah, People are either motivated for change, like I know what I don't want to go back to and I want to create this new experience in my life. Or people are like, I'm exhausted. Like what I've just done and what I've just seen is so much. It's so much especially in places like New York and Seattle, places who are seeing like really high burdens of COVID. Yeah. So that's physiciancoachingalliance.com. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then for me personally, you know, yeah. uh, peppermd.com, you can find me and also on social media post daily about what it's like to be a practicing physician who's dealing with these issues from a personal standpoint and from a client standpoint. So yeah, I really highly recommend following Kara on Instagram. Her information is always very clear, very succinct, very on point. And there's the thing that I love most about it is just like, there's no bullshit. Who's got time for that? Especially when you're burnt out. Yeah, that's right. So if you are looking for a resource to get started, I think that your Instagram page is an amazing place to go because it is a place where you can easily feel supported, seen, validated, heard, and not have to sort of wade through the Instagram social media world of like, think positive, unicorns will fly out your bottom. Yeah, that's not my style. (laughs) Which is why I like you so much because it's not mine either. As a life coach and an acupuncturist and being sort of on the fringe of things, being overly positive just for the sake of it, I think is a burnout risk factor in a big, big way. So I don't like that either. And it's something that I noticed about your work right away and something that I really, really appreciated. So I'd be thrilled to send people to a space where they can get the information that they need without being treated like a child, really. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, there's ways to link through my website and through the Instagram page, of course, but just set up a call and talk to me for 30 minutes. There's no like gimmicks. It's literally like, how can I help you? And if I can't, I will help get you to someone like I'm personally vested in having doctors who are committed to doing their work or finding happiness outside of this. And so we need each other now more than we've ever needed each other because we uniquely understand what it's like to be in this world of medicine. Yeah. That was beautifully said. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time, which I know is so very precious. I am so grateful that you took some of it to come here and share your wisdom and your knowledge and your experience with Fried Audience. I'm so, so grateful. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for the work you're doing. It is so important for everyone, not just the colleagues in healthcare. Thank you. All right, everybody, that wraps up another episode of Fried the Burnout Podcast. 
You can find Dr. Kara at karapeppermd.com and you can find the Physician Coaching Alliance where there are a whole list of different physicians coaching at physiciancoachingalliance.com. And as always, you can book a call with me when you need me because you know I love to hear your stories and you know I love to create space for you at bit.ly forward slash call Kate and that makes it easy. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Hey there, before you go, the Resentment Journal mini course has been flying off the shelves, the virtual shelves, as some might say, and the feedback has been so fun. A customer recently wrote in that she's renaming the Resentment Journal her I don't hate everyone anymore journal, and I totally get it. Working through your resentments in a safe and positive way creates energy, releases anger and annoyance, and allows you to create boundaries like a superstar. You can purchase the mini course on my website at katedonovan.com forward slash resentment dash journal. That will be in the show notes for you so you don't need to write it down. And it is literally the best 27 bucks you'll spend all year long. Grab yours now. The price goes up at the end of the summer. Until next time. Ha 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 